Today on CityCast Philly, Pennsylvania is among the states expected to get a lot of money from multiple settlements with big pharma companies. According to Axios, more than 5,000 Pennsylvanians died of a drug overdose last year. Philly accounted for nearly 24% of those deaths. So where are we at with harm reduction in the city? And what should be done with that opioid settlement money? Well, I'm chatting with two women who are on the front lines of the opioid crisis here in the city. It's Wednesday, October 26, 2022. I'm Trinae Nuri, and this is CityCast Philly. Nicole Bixler runs Operation in My Backyard, and Sarah Laurel runs Savage Sisters. Thanks so much for being on CityCast Philly. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Nicole, can you explain to us what is harm reduction? So harm reduction is, it's like a set of almost guidelines and like ideas and values that reduce the harm from behaviors that could potentially be harmful. So it doesn't have to revolve around drug use. It can be just everyday lifestyle, going out in the sun, wearing sunblock, wearing a seatbelt when you drive your car, using a condom when you have sex, um, drinking water and eating before you drink alcohol, things like that. So, Nicole, your organization, Operation In My Backyard, provides services like food, hygiene products and other harm reduction supplies. And Sarah, Savage Sisters, does that too, but also has a housing component. You provide a safe living environment for people who are struggling with substance abuse. And I know both of your organizations primarily work in Kensington. How do you feel like your work impacts that neighborhood? I think that there are, there's different, there's a lot of levels to this because you have a residential community that's been neglected for decades. Um, mm-hmm. And it, just plainly, you know, the city has not done what they need to do to support uh, the families that live there. And as a resident there, I understand the frustration on that. And one of the biggest things that we do is try to bring the beautification to the community and clean up the trash and discard the the drug paraphernalia and things like that. Um, Our housing piece, which is in South Philadelphia, outside of Kensington, we have a large majority, over 60% of our residents we've engaged with on the streets of Kensington. And when they're ready for recovery, they come into our housing. So we like to think that we are positively impacting people's change and them hopefully getting out of that environment and recreating their lives um, to provide more safety and um, a better environment for the residential community. For the unhoused community and those that we serve uh, with harm reduction supplies and sex workers kits um, and just like the street-based wound care, those individuals are very receptive and welcome to the supplies and just the radical love that we give to them because most of the time, I will say a majority of the time, they are not met with compassion and tolerance. They are met with frustration um, and there's a lot of negative intentions in their daily activities with just every encounter that they have. So they're very receptive to us. And as we build trust with them, um, that increases. So I think it's it's like walking a tightrope when it comes to serving the unhoused and also providing um, some services to the community as well and being mindful of the trauma that they've endured for decades. 
What do you say to people who feel like this issue just doesn't really impact their daily lives? Like, how do you convince people to care? Oh, man, I, I feel like half half the day is um, trying to meet people in intimate enough spaces to have the conversation with them and explain to them that everyone deserves to live. Right. And you're wearing a sweatshirt that, you know, our viewers can't see, but it says, I love people who use drugs. Well, I like to look at it from a broader, a zoomed out lens. Um, Nicotine is Mm -hmm. a drug. Caffeine is a drug. Alcohol is a drug. Everybody uses substances. We've just decided which substances we think are okay and which substances we think are not okay. And the reason that I wear this shirt is because I don't put stipulations on love. You get to be connected to resources. You get radical love regardless of whatever you put into your body. And sometimes it's difficult to have that conversation with people because prohibition um, has very negatively impacted the way that people look at particular drugs. How about for you, Nicole? Well, I think that, you know, it's really hard. It's like a constant uphill battle. And Sarah's out there a lot more than we are like we do our outreach once a week and then aside from that it's just kind of gathering resources but when we do our events in the community like when we do fundraisers we always choose bars for the most part we choose a bar because technically a bar is a safe consumption site it's just that the substance that people are consuming is legal it's Mm -hmm. regulated you you know Mm -hmm. what you're getting when you go to the bar and ask for a drink And I think that sometimes, although people may be, you know, supportive of giving out Narcan, they may not be supportive of the other services that we provide or that Savage may provide. But when you take the, like Sarah said, like stipulation out of it, you know, how are you going to talk to a room full of people who most of them are have a drink in their hand and say, what separates you from the person that we're serving on the street is that the law is saying that this is okay and that's not okay. So I think that, you know, a lot of times people have a hard time seeing past the behaviors of people who are actively using because, you know, sometimes they do impact others around them. They impact the family. They impact impact that individual. But if we start comparing it to, well, you wouldn't treat someone with diabetes that way. And this is like the typical, you know, stereotypical comparison is, oh, if somebody had diabetes and they were eating an ice cream cone, you weren't going to shame them for it. But someone with diabetes isn't impacting people around them with their behavior. And it's hard to see that like underneath that behavior, it's just someone with a lot of trauma and who has been judged and shunned and like pushed to the outskirts of society and people all they see is that they're not seeing the person they're just seeing the drugs and the behavior and their assumptions so just trying to like reach people on their level but it's hard it's an uphill battle so the city is getting some money from settlements from big pharma companies and this money is not coming all at once but it's expected to trickle down over the next 18 years But do you think eventually community grassroots organizations like yours could get some of that money? I would like to see us get some of that money. But historically speaking, the organizations that are boots on the ground doing this work day in and day out have been bypassed largely. Um, Because 
generally we're people with lived experience and we're the best at doing the boots on the ground work and we're not good in a suit and tie writing a grant. Um, so we get bypassed. I think that there should be more money with this opioid settlement that goes into um, updating the model of care when it comes to substance use disorder and addressing it in a more long-term sense. Because as of right now, we still have intervention in the model of care, which is very outdated. It's a proven failed system. And you have thousands, millions of dollars a year that go into paying for people to have these failed interventions. You even have a TV show about it. Um, what I would like to see money be allocated towards is updating withdrawal protocols um, and also providing mental health services long-term once you get out of the acute withdrawal stage. Because currently the way that the system works is you get seven to 10 days. If you're lucky, you get 28 days. Your chemicals are not balanced in your brain yet. You're not stable yet. And then you're told that you need to go figure it out. Um, so housing should be a part of that transition. Safe, whole health management housing and mental health resources long-term should be as well. Uh, right now, we don't have that. So if you're going to allocate specific funding to street-based outreach, that's great. Harm reduction supplies, lowering the risk of infectious diseases, um, safe syringe programs, et cetera. But I think a lot of that money and a lot of the recidivism rates that we see right now are because the long-term care is not included in the standard of care for substance use disorder currently and hasn't been for 30 years, hasn't been updated for 30 years. Um, so that needs to change and there should be some money that goes towards that. That's my opinion though. For you, Nicole, how would you spend this settlement money if you had the decision to do so? I definitely agree with Sarah. Um, I've worked in the substance use disorder treatment field for the last 11 years. And now the job that I have now, I just do mental health because I am pretty disgusted with how we are treated. And I'm also a person with lived experience and working in the field, seeing that it is very outdated. I think it's damaging, but I would, in addition to what Sarah is saying, I would also say, you know, the long-term aspect is super important. But what happens when somebody is, I mean, let's face it, like most of people like us get out of this and we have some charges. So who's going to hire us? So I think that like okay, investing mm -hmm. in companies that are going to maybe be able to write off some taxes to hire people who have a history of drug use and felonies, you know, and get them back on track. Like other countries have done it, even though they're smaller than us, but it gives somebody an incentive to kind of like explore their worth and not just feel like they're on this, you know, rat race, like hamster wheel that they're not getting anywhere and everything's against them. It just, the system isn't designed for you to be successful. It's like you have to mold who you are and your recovery path, whatever that looks like to the system. It's not molding to you. What does the future look like for harm reduction? In Philadelphia? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I would hope that it would be more financially supported by the city, by larger donors. I, I would hope that all of these smaller groups that are trying to like make an impact in our communities on little neighborhood corners through the city are going to have the spotlight on them at some point because they're doing really good work. And I feel like 
it's been like for for my organization personally, it's been clawing an uphill battle like out of a hole to be able to stay afloat to do what we're doing, which is why, mm. you know, Sarah is amazing and has the housing component. We don't have that. That's not something that we can offer. It's hard to find people that would shine the light on what we're doing and like back us. And it doesn't have to be with money. It could just be with like, I don't know, supplies to help us keep moving forward. Like none of, we don't pay ourselves. That would be amazing. The future to be, you know, in a situation where all of these harm reduction organizations can get a really great salary and do the work full time. Cause I do think that that those are the right people that should be in those positions. And Sarah, for you, what would you like the future to look like? I guess first I would want to see a better understanding. I think that there's a huge gap in the understanding and the education around what harm reduction actually is. Uh, We're never going to see an increase in resources until people actually understand it because right now they're too afraid of it. Um, So I think more education, I'd like to see that education starting at a high school level um, okay. I think, uh, high school and college education around harm reduction is crucial to changing the narrative going forward and improving the way that we deal with people who use substances or engage in different behaviors, um, in a judgment-free space. And I do think inevitably, whether people like it or not, Philadelphia will have a safe consumption site. <laughs> I don't know who's going to open it. I don't know who's going to run it. It's not going to be me because um, I'm a recovering person from IV drug use and I can't do that, but I it's coming. Like it has to within our city. You know, there's just too much going on. Uh, and, um, you know, besides those two things, I think that I would like to see policy reform and change around uh, syringe programs. And uh, I'd like to see um, statewide drug checking so that we can stay up to date and current on drug trends and inform the public of potential dangers, such as when fentanyl hit the market. Now we have xylazine. Thanks so much, Sarah Laurel and Nicole Bixler, for being on CityCast Philly. Thank you. Thanks for having us. And we'll have links about Operation In My Backyard and Savage Sisters in our show notes. And here's what else Philly's talking about. A PA House committee searching for grounds to impeach Philly District Attorney Larry Krasner issued an interim report this week. According to the Inquirer, the committee criticized Krasner's administration and record as the city's top prosecutor, but stopped short of calling for his removal from office, an outcome that Krasner said he had expected. This report marks the latest development in a months-long clash between state lawmakers and the city's DA. The city's controller, Rebecca Reinhardt, resigned yesterday to announce she's running for mayor. According to the Inquirer, Reinhardt has been the fiscal watchdog for the last five years. She will join an increasingly crowded field of other candidates who plan to make a run for the city's top job. And this is interesting. Counterculture on South Street is hosting Friends, the one with murder. And that's Friends with a PH. So this is an interactive murder mystery production that's based on the TV show sitcom 
friends. So Rachel, Phoebe, Monica, Joey, Ross, Chandler, they all take a trip down to Philly and one will become a victim. So guests will search for clues. There's a scavenger hunt. You solve the mystery while sipping coffee-themed cocktails. This show starts Friday, October 28th and runs through December 18th. That's all for today here on CityCast Philly. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed the show, tell your friend, rate the show, leave us a review, and subscribe to our morning newsletter. We'll be back tomorrow morning with more news from around the city. Bye. Do you want me to do it again or? Okay, we made it.